Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast today. I'm really excited to share this episode with you with Miller Whitehouse Levine. Miller is the policy director at the DeFi Education Fund. With oversight from the DeFi Education Fund's grants committee, Miller has overall strategic and operational responsibility for the execution of the fund's mission and goals. Prior to joining the fund, Miller led the Blockchain Association's policy operation and worked at Goldstein Policy Solutions on a range of public policy issues, including crypto. And as you've heard me say many times on this podcast, education is the most important aspect of crypto that we need to push forward. And the DeFi Education Fund is doing a great job of building education in this space. We'll talk about what the fund is, the origin story behind it, as well as recent updates with Tornado Cash, the sanctions, and the arrests in the Netherlands. Miller, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd start off with your Genesis block. Where were you first introduced to Bitcoin? And then perhaps you could touch on where it finally clicked or maybe it clicked immediately for you that, wow, I want to dedicate my time to working in the crypto industry. Yeah, for sure. I, and it was Bitcoin, so got that part, got that part right. Um, I first found out about Bitcoin in 2013, 2014. At the time, I was living in Beijing with a host family, all of whom, or both of whom were members or are members of the Chinese Communist Party. And at the very beginning, I didn't speak Chinese, they didn't speak English, and so there was definitely trial by fire, which is probably one of the many reasons I got into crypto. But at the time, the expat community in Beijing was pretty into this weird thing called Bitcoin that I had never heard of prior. And through osmosis, really, in that community, I learned about Bitcoin and what it was all about. And, you know, in the context of living with two party members and in Beijing at the time, there was a, I think, real contrast between some of the values that Bitcoin embodies as a technology in comparison with the or to the society I was living in. And that kind of stark contrast is how Coin kind of clicked for me, so to speak, originally. In 2013, 2014, I was already into policy. And at the time, there wasn't much of a policy ecosystem for crypto in D.C. or elsewhere. So it was very much a personal interest until later. And I was working at a multi-client lobbying shop, Goldstein Policy Solutions, which got the Blockchain Association as a member, and uh, they were looking for somebody to work on policy over there. And so jumped into it full time. But yeah, I mean, my professional career is kind of weird in that I have exclusively worked in, in crypto policy, and it's already been quite a journey. And that's exclusive of everything that happened between 2013 and 2018. 
Um, so started definitely, I think, my attraction to Bitcoin and it's, again, the values that I think the technology embodies was ideologically driven to a large extent when, when I first found out about it. And I think that holds true till to, holds true to today. I think at the 30,000 foot level, technology generally has benefited the state at the expense of individual liberty. And I think about blockchains, Bitcoin as being one of the more potent developments in the history of technology and the internet that rebalances that equation in what I think is a much needed way. So that's how I got into crypto. That's why I'm here. And of course, all of that, everything I just said there is equally applicable to DeFi. And um, that's why I'm here and, and advocating for DeFi with, with sovereigns on the other side of the table, which is certainly an interesting dynamic. On that topic, and we'll, we'll get into the origin story and, and how the DeFi Education Fund works. I'd love to just quickly hear your thoughts on lobbying and policymaking. From your perspective, what are what do most people get wrong when they think of what crypto or DeFi lobbying looks like or consists of? Crypto and DeFi lobbying specifically? Or lob- lobbying generally, if, if that gives you a bit more to work with. Well, I think crypto and DeFi lobbying specifically... Um, I think what people don't appreciate is the gargantuan task that we are facing as an ecosystem, because most folks or industries or interest groups come to DC with various asks or agendas that people at least understand at a baseline, but you start speaking the same language. If I am a university and I'm asking for more federal funding, Nobody's like, what's a university? You know, everybody gets what you're trying to do. That is not the case with respect to crypto in any way, shape, or form. It takes a lot of work to just get folks speaking the same language before you can even start making arguments and making your case, so to speak. Because I would say 90% plus of policy make have probably heard about Bitcoin, but have no understanding of what it actually does or what it's trying to do. And frankly, I think the reaction when you first describe it or attempt to describe it to folks who are uninitiated are yeah, the, the funniest reaction I ever got was somebody said, that sounded like revelations. So it's a blockchain, crypto, DeFi is a complicated topic. And I think the thing that naturally folks in the ecosystem uh, misunderstand is that they think people start and the people that are responsible for making decisions on behalf of our society start with the same level of knowledge that we all have. And that is certainly not the case. And I think to your point is, is something that we're here to address because it leads to bad policy outcomes. The lack of mutual understanding, a lack of understanding on both sides, not just on government side, but I think also on ecosystem side is unhealthy and just it makes it more difficult to work out the way forward. So I think that's like the biggest misconception. I also think the scale of what the industry needs to do is a bit misunderstood. I think TradFi spends over a billion dollars a year in DC every year, and policymakers know exactly what they're up to. So 
everybody speaks the same language as as the big banks, and yet you know they're spending investing a million a billion dollars in DC every year because I think they rightly know it's high ROI for them. Um, on lobbying generally, you know, I think lobbying gets a bad rate, definitely has a, a stigma to it. And I think that, you know, there, there are reasons for that for sure. But I think the, the reason I think lobbying is extremely valuable, especially if you're in a complicated and misunderstood industry is that you have to make your case, you know, there has to be somebody making the case on behalf of industry and users. And if you leave it up to folks that either don't have a strong appreciation for what the technology is trying to accomplish or how it works, you'll never have good policy outcomes. And I think that's especially true in a novel and pretty complex ecosystem. And in terms of novel and complex ecosystems, when it comes to crypto, generally it's complex. DeFi seems orders of magnitude, and I'm sure for policymakers, orders of magnitude more complicated with many moving parts. The DeFi Education Fund is here to fix that here, not fix it necessarily, but here to address it and translate it to make it palpable so that we can have coherent policy. I would love for you to give a bit of background on what the DeFi Education Fund is all about and the origin story. Sure. Yeah, so the origin story begins, I think it was February 2021. I was just an average DeFi user at the time, and the Harvard Law School Blockchain Club proposed creating what eventually became the DEF to Uniswap governance. Over many months, the proposal worked through Uniswap governance and eventually passed and the uni tokens were transferred to a multi-sig of seven people at the time that have been delineated in the governance proposal to oversee the funds and the mission of the organization. I think that was around July 4th of 2021. And a couple of weeks later, they posted a, a job posting for their first staffer of the organization and I applied to it and uh, here I am. So, you know, what we've been thinking about over the last year is definitely what I've been talking about. So I think primarily focused on getting on the same page with the people we need to be making arguments to. And you know, there's been some encouraging developments and some discouraging developments. I've been absolutely floored by the level of interest and open-mindedness in Congress specifically with respect to DeFi and crypto generally, especially he's kind of like a... Um, a dumbbell curve in that there's a lot of very young people and very old people who run the country. Staffers tend to be in their mid twenties or late twenties and, you know, are working for older representatives as, as we all know, but we go into these offices to give DeFi briefings, you know, it's a Senator or Congressman's office that has never even uttered the word crypto or DeFi in public. And you get in there talking to a staffer who's on MetaMask, you know, opening a maker vault every evening. And that was surprising because it's, you know, it's like we, we live in our little crypto DeFi bubble, but the level of interest among young staffers is really through the roof. And the level of open-mindedness in Congress, I think, has been 
extraordinarily encouraging. So in Congress, we do a bunch of briefings. We've, I think, met with over 240 congressional offices now to give DeFi 101 briefings, to feel out how people, the level of interest, how much they know, whether they care to know more. They're like, you know, go talk to somebody else and we'll, we'll follow leadership's recommendation on whatever vote is coming down the pipeline. Um, but, you know, over a lot of education, a lot of, as regulatory packages are being put together for CFI. A lot of the work we do is making sure it doesn't inadvertently capture DeFi. When drafting happens and people are only thinking about the centralized portions of the ecosystem, people don't even think about, you know, DeFi considerations unless they're aware of its existence and the need to treat or consider the policy questions related to CFI and DeFi in completely different ways. Um, so I think that that's also been encouraging. There's definitely an awareness that DeFi exists and it's something separate from a centralized exchange or a, a lending business or what have you. Um, so that's been encouraging. The regulatory side is different. Um, I, I do think generally overall, the, uh, there's less open-mindedness on the agency side broadly with some few exceptions. I think FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is the U.S. agency, it's a sub-agency in the Treasury Department responsible for enforcing the U.S.'s AML-CFT laws, is one of, if not the most adept and knowledgeable regulators when it comes to crypto and DeFi in the United States. So it, they probably out of necessity have been looking at this space since 2011. And a lot of regulators, I think, have held their breath because the quote unquote tulip mania will eventually go away and it won't be a problem that they have to deal with. You know, law enforcement hasn't had that problem. And I think it's paid the dividends in, in to the extent that the Senate has issued really clear and thoughtful guidance when it comes to BSA, AML, CFT obligations in the crypto ecosystem. So that has also been encouraging. But overall, you know, Congress, I think, is where the ecosystem's focus should be because Congress is ultimately the big boss and certainly is much more bullish on DeFi overall than I think many of the executive agencies tend to be. And in your role at the DeFi Education Fund and given the goals of the fund in propagating education in this space. I can imagine you've got a relatively good handle on how to best teach or provide that primer on DeFi, that DeFi 101. I was wondering what the first five minutes of that discussion looks like, because I think there are a lot of people listening, whether they're lawyers or policymakers themselves, who often find themselves being asked to define DeFi or give a primer on DeFi. So I was wondering if you could provide some insight into what things you say that resonate with Congress, other members of the U.S. regulatory system. Yeah, I think, you know, given our my experience with all of these offices, relating it to something they use every day or already understand is the key to getting someone to understand at least why it matters, maybe not how it works in a short period of time. So there are kind of, in, in my mind, two categories of that five-minute conversation. One is for people who have a general sense of what Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are and what they're trying to do. And one is for people that have absolutely no idea about any of it. 
Um, so for those who know what Bitcoin is and Bitcoiners listening to this, please plug your ears. The first thing I say is, you know, if you understand Bitcoin, you're 95% of the way to understanding DeFi. Because if you think about cryptocurrencies via Bitcoin or others as being a DeFi protocol for payments, you can start to grasp the intent or the objective of other quote unquote DeFi protocols and what they're trying to do and how. Um, so it, why I say that is I, DeFi is almost a broader term than cryptocurrencies and what DeFi you know, what is called DeFi developers and protocols are attempting to do is use the same technological underpinnings of Bitcoin or that were, were developed for Bitcoin to disintermediate and make permissionless financial activities beyond just payments. You, know, you can interact with the Bitcoin protocol to send value from point A to point B. And now you can interact with the decentralized exchange protocol to exchange asset A for asset B on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. So conceptually, you know, trying to accomplish the same outcome in principle, but for a different financial activity, cryptocurrencies for payments, DeFi protocols for now, a host of other financial transactions and activities. Um, on the other hand, for people who don't know anything about Bitcoin or DeFi, I try to relate it to email, something that people know and love and comparing you know, email and the USPS to something like Western Union and Bitcoin, um, where and, you know, many of the benefits are constant too. And I, I like using email because it's a visceral idea or you know, a visceral technology that people use every day and has you know, clearly made people's lives better. And it's easy to understand the value proposition of email over something like the USPS. So that's where I start with folks that um, don't know anything about crypto, Bitcoin, and by extension, DeFi. And you know, the as policymakers, one thing I, I I will say is they're good at they're good at grasping the why or why something matters and setting aside how it works, which I think is ext extremely uh, useful in the context of of DeFi and Bitcoin. You know, another thing I say is, does anybody on this call know what IP TCP is or what it does? Does anybody know what SMTP means? No, you know, but TP, you know, IP TCP literally runs the internet and SMTP runs your email. If you could explain it, uh, how it works, then you're probably yeah, a, a tech nerd, but you fully grasp the implications of an email protocol and the disintermediation of uh, communications generally. So I think in a 30 minute call, there's no hope of getting into hash functions and how, how a blockchain works, but equating it to, again, things people are already quite comfortable with, which by the way, nobody was comfortable with when the internet was new. They were talking about the, the pipes that connect the information superhighway in the 90s, um, but it's definitely more streamlined to get to the implications and why it matters if policymakers aren't bored to death by how a blockchain works, notwithstanding how interesting folks in, in DeFi and crypto might think it is. I've given some presentations before, and it's something you learn relatively quickly when speaking to lawyers about crypto is 
it's much better to focus on the why than the how yeah. if your goal is to not bore the audience to death. And I think that's a great reminder to really use analogies or use systems that have been developed in the past to provide a reference point saying that you don't need to understand every aspect of how proof of work system works, just like you don't need to know how email works to use it. But at the same time, these technologies aren't too dissimilar in that one provides messaging communication. The other one provides what we attribute to be value. So I, and digital scarcity, essentially that's great. Miller, are there any common, what would be the most common pushback that you see from regulators in that they get hung up on certain ideas that you have to either further explain or just find really difficult to to get over? Yeah, I think it's um, it's more meta questions that people agree with the ecosystem on and less so technical bones to pick. So for example, one question that I got recently that almost like took me aback, which will give you a sense of the fact that I even have some horse blinders on, was I was talking about the utility of determinative code for financial transactions as opposed to subjective institutions provisioning financial services. And the quest, the response was, you know, I feel like we've we figured out via the regulation of financial institutions with, you know, a high level of certainty how to operate financial services in a trustworthy, if not trustless way. And, you know, being a, a growing up during the global financial crisis, I, my jaw almost hit the floor because I you know, clearly come to DeFi and crypto with a completely different idea of the success and utility of our current system than some policymakers and, and regulators do. Um, so those, you know, like kind of fundamental disagreements over the societal utility of the technology are always the hardest to overcome because it's, it's a it's a disagreement not based on a misunderstanding or lack of knowledge, but also, but more about you know the societal benefit and utility of the technology more broadly. That's following up on your earlier question, I think definitely a blind spot of crypto and DeFi with respect to policymakers in the political process is that, you know, if they just knew a little more, if they just were knew as much as we do about how it works and why it matters, then they'll certainly be on, on the same page as us. That is not true. There are people who know far more than, than I ever will about crypto and DeFi who think it's a net negative compared to the existing financial system. And, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I do think it's a, a blind spot of crypto users who, you know, see the utility intuitively that, you know, as soon as folks just know enough, they're going to be on our team. That is not the case. And it's about convincing 50% plus one and you know, getting consensus at least as much as possible on, on our positions as opposed to, as opposed to those. So I, that's also a blind spot I, I would address. And, you know, on, on the other, on the other hand, you know, a superficial understanding is, is useful, I think for, you know, inch deep mile wide across Congress, but there's, you know, a critical need to have people that are an inch wide, a mile deep. And that is one of the reasons we fund fellowships at think tanks around DC. The more smart people thinking about DeFi policy issues, 
who understand how the tech works, that get into the nitty gritty details of what is possible, what isn't possible, what can be replicated from traditional finance, what can't be, is a vacuum that we we need to fill. And one of the ways we're trying to do that is by funding these fellowships where people get to spend a year at a think tank, you know, getting into the gory details of DeFi and thinking about policy questions that that Congress and regulators have in the context of DeFi at a deeper level. But overall, I think definitely a year ago, the loudest voices in Washington were extreme skeptics, I'll say euphemistically. And uh, no matter what, the more people that are interested and knowledgeable about DeFi, I think the better off we'll be. And the more educated they are, the the better off the entire space will be in the short run, in the long run. hundred percent. And so... The DeFi Education Fund, you you speak to Congress, you speak to regulators, you also provide grants for these fellowships for people to learn. What else would fall under the DeFi Education Fund's umbrella of activities that you're doing to move forward the education of DeFi? Yeah, so we also make grants to other organizations that are aligned with our missions. For example, Fight for the Future is a an advocacy group for digital rights and freedom online. And they really are one of the first outside or third-party advocacy groups that are doing really great work in the space. You know, we don't agree with them on some things. You know, we're probably in agreement on 60 to 80% of the policy issues Fight for the Future works on. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's a slam dunk. Yeah, if we agree on this, over two thirds of policy positions, we should be supporting those groups because um, there's no, yeah, we perfect can't be the enemy of the good in this situation. And again, there's a acute need to have more voices advocating for DeFi, or at least eighty percent of the way there in Washington. They've done amazing work and Fight for the Future is an organization that I hope we we are able to keep supporting. We also do comment letters around the world now. So for example, the SEC has issued two rulemakings this year that may implicate DeFi. We don't know because they do it without mentioning digital assets or DeFi, but every smoke signal we've gotten from folks who know what's going on at the SEC, like Commissioner Hester Peirce, makes it pretty clear that the SEC is trying to circuitously regulate DeFi via rulemakings that don't even mention it. So we submit comment letters. We submitted one to the Abu Dhabi Financial Services Regulator. Um, Another thing we do, which I think is definitely behind the scenes, but I think has been very useful, is working with reporters who are covering the space and who have a week to write a story on Tornado Cash and they've never heard of crypto or DeFi. Yeah, I think it's like almost a meme in crypto, on crypto Twitter when like a bad news story comes out that just totally misrepresents the issue and the technology. And you know, I think it's easier, it's easy for folks on crypto Twitter to laugh at, but We have to remember that millions and millions of people look to those publications as their source of trusted information. And, you know, I think it's easy for us to brush off media, media's mistakes or misrepresentations of the industry as just being something we don't have to worry about. But I completely disagree with that. 
I think at the very least accurate reporting and helping reporters understand the issues, the technology is something that everyone in DeFi should be doing as much as, as possible because they really are the conduit to people who, you know, what, once a month will read about DeFi in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, and that's their impression of, of the ecosystem, the industry, and the technology. So that is something we're also focused on, which is, has been useful. And then finally, it, I think following up on the SEC comment letters, to the extent it, there are rulemakings that threaten people's ability to develop DeFi protocols or use them without restriction, litigation may be, may be something we're forced into. And I know you are also very active with regarding the tornado cash situation. There are sanctions, um, arrests. There was an arrest made in Netherlands when Dutch police arrested suspected tornado cash dev. You sent the DeFi Education Fund, sent Treasury an FOIA request for documents and communications on the tornado designation. Can you explain what's going on for those who may have seen the headlines but haven't read the articles on the tornado cash situation? Yeah, and I'll I'll kind of take a step back and kind of explain like the history of where this is coming from and you know the origin story of what I think became clear to the world the last Monday. Um AML, anti-money laundering regulators and law enforcement policymakers, I think have really deep-seated concerns about disintermediating finance. And, you know, whatever one thinks about that, it's true. And the reason for that is the entire anti-money laundering regime, as it's existed really since the 70s, has been predicated on surveillance obligations for third-party intermediaries. Um, when you, in the U S this is, this is all implemented via a package of laws called the bank secrecy act. What the bank secrecy act says is that when a U.S. citizen Miller goes to a third party, be it a financial institution or otherwise, and relinquishes his personal information to a third party, he's waived his expectation or right to privacy under the fourth amendment. That is called a legal theory called the third party doctrine. When a person is using the services of a third party and in order to do so gives that third party personal information, the government doesn't have to get a warrant to get that data. That's an oversimplification, but is the net net. Um, given that before Bitcoin was developed, every digital financial transaction was intermediated. That system provided a lot of data that law enforcement has grown to rely on in, in fundamental and I'll say important ways. You know, nobody wants anyone or terrorists to be able to finance their activities or money launderers to get away with it. And the Bank Secrecy Act has become one of the primary tools that law enforcement uses to accomplish the, those objectives. And that has worked because of the fact that before Bitcoin existed, financial intermediation was broadly necessary unless you're making a peer-to-peer -peer cash transaction in person. So Bitcoin comes around, you know, you're a law enforcement person looking at suspicious activity reports from every U.S. financial institution around the world. 
and Bitcoin comes around and there's you know no third party that is submitting information to you. And there is no third party that is able to submit information to you. And again, no, no matter where you land on, on the merits of the third party doctrine and the Bank Secrecy Act, and of course I am not the biggest fan, you can understand why that is concerning to law enforcement. You know, the tool or an important tool they've been using for 50 years that, that they've been using for 50 years to accomplish their policy objectives has been made obsolete in a really fundamental way. And so, you know, what do you do? That is, I think, the question that and to follow up on my comments on them has answered in a really elegant way. And uh, that hasn't been predicated on trying to expand intermediary obligations to entities that aren't intermediaries, be it miners, validators, developers, what have you. Um, just because FinCEN, you know, I think is, is, again, thinking about it in the right way, doesn't mean other folks in the law enforcement community and ecosystem think about it in the same way. For example, there's an international group of called the Financial Action Task Force that its objective is to essentially harmonize various nation states, LCFT regulations and laws. Um, the FATF, you know, their position is, okay, you know, Bitcoin came around, you didn't get rid of intermediaries, you just created new ones. So we need to apply uh, the exact same regulations to uh, these new uh, so-called intermediaries. And, you know, we're happy-go-lucky from there. We don't need to change anything about what we've been doing. That quickly runs into the problem of reality. Their reality being, for example, you know, there could be zero Bitcoin miners operating in the United States and every U.S. citizen with an internet connection has access to it in the exact same way as if they were operating in the United States. So that, that's the fundamental tension that I think has boiled over in a really dramatic way with the sanctioning of the Tornado Cash Protocol. It, law enforcement and national security officials in this instance are used to a financial system predicated on the roles, responsibilities, and existence of intermediaries to which they can apply regulations, controls, etc. And that's not the case anymore. And that that you know, fundamental policy question isn't isn't unique to AML CFT. It's the exact same question when it comes to markets regulation, securities regulation, you know, pick one and the problem at root is is fundamentally the same. So, you know, OFAC has been has always designated, sorry. OFAC just briefly to give some background is the Office of Foreign Asset Control. It's a sub-department of the US Treasury responsible for implementing and enforcing US sanctions. Sanctions are a tool that prohibits U.S. persons from transacting with persons and entities, in this case, foreign persons and entities, that the U.S. government is seeking to change the behavior of. But to start, that's an important concept. Sanctions are not meant to, or to be used as a punishment for anything. They're meant to incentivize foreign 
nationals, and it is restricted to foreigners, be they persons or entities, to incentivize them to change some behavior that that Treasury at OFAC determines to be contrary to the U.S. national interest. Um, so that's kind of at the context that brings us to Monday, or at least to a few months before Monday. There have been really significant bridge hacks, as everyone knows, over the last year. In this instance, the, the cited hack being the Ronin bridge hack, which I think was $600 plus million, and was eventually tied to a hacking group called the Lazarus Group. The Lazarus Group is a North Korean state-sponsored hacking group that has been active for over a decade, not just in crypto, but yeah, across across the internet, so to speak. And it is somehow they were identified as being responsible for the Ronin bridge hack. So yeah, $600 million is not insignificant. I don't think anybody could argue that that is a good thing. Um, and so Treasury is, is looking at a bridge hack like this, and obviously North Korea is sanctioned. And they're trying to follow the money, so to speak, across the blockchain and see a bunch of it going to this smart contract that is called Tornado Cash. Um, so I think you know, the combination of the hacking and the, or, or the Lazarus group's use of the smart contract is the context that brought us to Monday. In addition to, um, you know, I think OFAC's more fundamental concern about the disintermediation of finance and how they're going to go about accomplishing their objectives, given that that new context. Um, Treasury or OFAC has sanctioned um, mixers before. So for example, a few months ago, Blender.io was sanctioned. The key difference being that Blender is a custodial mixer, which under FinCEN regulations is already subject to BSA, AML, CFT controls, and Treasury sanctioned Blender because they were being used for illicit purposes to the extent that OFAC felt like a designation was was appropriate. It, nobody, there was no uproar then because they sanctioned an entity, a group of persons, a business that has subjective, that has agency over what they are doing, which clients they serve, and how they go about doing that. And again, that's important because sanctions are meant to change behavior and presumably the behavior that OFAC was attempting to incentivize in that instance was Blender, a, mix, a custodial mixing service, should implement BSA obligations as the law requires. Um, that brings us to Tornado Cash, which is a smart contract. On Monday last week, you know, the, the Treasury Department sanctioned or listed as sanctioned quote-unquote, or so-called entities, not only wallets associated with the project, but also the smart contract addresses themselves, which was the novel and really concerning aspect of Treasury's action last week. And it's concerning for a host of reasons. Number one being, can you know one plausibly claim that a smart contract is a person or an entity that one is attempting to change the behavior of via a sanction? Um, with respect to Tornado Cash, the contracts that were sanctioned are immutable. So it's impossible for them to change, you know, for the smart contract itself, they, you know, it's, it's weird to even use the pronoun they because it's a piece of computer software. But, you know, an immutable smart contract isn't going to change. It, it'll exist in its current state as it existed last in its state last Sunday. 
until or forever, as long as the Ethereum blockchain is running. Um, so, you know, not only does it is it impossible for the behavior, quote unquote, of the smart contract to change, I think it's also even more concerning that the net effect of the sanction, therefore, isn't to change the behavior of something that it, that's behavior can, can't change, but to essentially make it illegal for U.S. persons to use that technology for any purpose, legitimate or not. And that's the first time a sanction has been used in that way. You know, I think instead of attempting to change a foreign national's behavior because it doesn't align with um, U.S. national interests, the practical effect of the designation of a smart contract is criminalizing U.S. persons' use of, of a software that is intended to preserve their privacy on what is otherwise a public blockchain. Um, so I think there are like really fundamental implications of that from a civil liberties and due process perspective. And I think you know, one of the comments that a treasury official made during the press call was, was quoted in, the, in Coindesk in the Financial Times was that it was meant to send a signal that you know, a treasury isn't okay with reconstituted versions of the tornado cash mixer, which I think it reveals an active intent to chill the development of privacy preserving technologies via the use of a unilateral sanctions authority without any public process input or really anything that was a surprise to everyone. Um, so, you know, I think that not only, not only is it concerning from um, a sanctions perspective in that an immutable smart contract is it going to change sanctioned or not but also that it the is the appropriate use of a sanctions power given that fact to criminalize us persons otherwise lawful behavior and third you know is it appropriate for the government which seemingly in this in this situation intends to influence the development of code before it's launched you know, is that something we as a body politic are comfortable with. Is it constitutional? It, should it be done via a public process, if at all, et cetera? So, I mean, it's these are really fundamental questions that I think echo other debates in other contexts. So, for example, you know, DOJ and other similarly situated or their, their counterparts in foreign nations are on the record that they want to ban end-to-end encryption because that makes it harder for them to collect information about illicit activity. There's, there is always and forever has been and forever will be a tension between surveillance and privacy with respect to enforcement of the law. And I, you know, I think it's a valid debate to have, certainly, as a, as a society. Um, but I don't think it's one that should be done without any debate or public process via a pretty potent um, foreign policy tool that's intended to do something else. Thank you for that, Miller. I really appreciate the the breakdown and the, the context as well, because it is such an important development, I think largely due to the fact that it is different than Blender.io in that this is a decentralized smart contract, essentially, regardless of whether it's decentralized or not, is almost irrelevant, whereas Blender.io was an entity that was holding custody of the funds and, and mixing them on the back end there. And so just to, to touch on what I've seen, 
I believe it was from the DeFi Education Fund regarding the Tornado Cash dev that was arrested by Dutch police. What what can you tell us about what, what you've learned in that context? And should people in North America or devs around the world be more cognizant of what tools they're working on? Yeah, and I forgot to answer your question because I had gone down such the rabbit hole. So let me let me start with the FOIA request and then talk about the arrest of the dev. So this actually came out last Monday, and on Tuesday we submitted what's called a Freedom of Information Act request to the Treasury. The Freedom of Information Act, the intent is that you know the U.S. government is of the people, by the people, for the people. And transparency is an important check or an important foundation of of our political system. And so the Freedom of Information Act allows any U.S. citizen to petition a a federal agency to release information, search their records about a topic, and then publish it depending on what it's about, either publicly or to just to the person requesting it. So we asked a series of questions in our FOIA request to OFAC about you know whether they think they sank or designated an entity and or person and if they do think they sanctioned an entity and or person what that entity is and if they think that you know they newly have the authority to sanction non-persons and non-entities how they're thinking about that how they're thinking about you know lawful us persons who are using the protocol and the collateral impact of the sanctions designation whether they have designated in the past a similarly situated so-called person and or entity, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a complete dearth of information about what the government did and what the government thinks it did. And I think it's incumbent on Treasury to clarify quickly what it thinks it did, what it was trying to do, um, and to the extent that what it did isn't what it was intending to do how it's going to rectify the situation. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's unfortunate to say the least that OFAC exercised its sanctions authority in a completely novel way without providing information to U.S. persons on what that means, how they're thinking about it, and how people can go about complying um, and you know, to the extent that they think they have the authority to do so. Um, which is which is questionable. But, you know, I think the lack of any information outside of the press release has really been a disservice to every U.S. person who is now banned from using this uh, privacy technology. So, you know, we want Treasury to expeditiously issue a lot more information about not only you know how it was thinking about the designation before, but also how it expects people to comply after and you know, how it's thinking about its ability to exercise its authorities in a novel way. Um, So that's number one. Number two and three, which is what we're working on now, is getting Treasury to issue FAQs in the same vein and to issue what's called a general license, which essentially exempts certain people and activities from liability that would otherwise be prohibited under the sanctions. So, for example, with the dusting of wallets via the Tornado Cash smart contract, technically people have to freeze those assets and report them to Treasury. And, you know, it's I don't think they intended to have 10,000 people freezing and reporting, you know, a 10th 
of an ETH to, oh, you know, that's, I mean, it just can't be, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> no, it just can't be. Or, um, you know, I don't think they intended to freeze lawful U.S. person's assets in the protocol in perpetuity, unless that U.S. person is willing to interact with a sanctioned Ethereum smart contract, you know, whatever that means. So there's you know, a dearth of information there. And I think it's in everyone's interest to not criminalize unnecessarily everyone who's ever touched the Torrent protocol and not to mention whether it's appropriate to sanction it at all, which again, I don't think it is. Um, which brings us to Amsterdam. So you know, last week it was reported and eventually publicly reported that a Tornado Cash de- a developer was arrested in in Amsterdam for facilitating money laundering. Um, the charges, to the extent there are charges, are, have not been made public. And we there was no real information beyond the press release that they issued last week, which did not say much at all. And so there obviously was a lot of speculation as to whether the matters were related to the extent they were related, what charges were you, you know, were actually brought, et cetera. Um, so we uh, started haranguing the press contact on the, on the press release for more information and, and it hasn't been terribly fruitful, but we did get some, a little bit of more information and tweeted it out. They got back to us and said, you know, it's separate from the sanctions designation that the charges aren't public to the extent there are any yet. And it's for the suspicion of facilitating money laundering. So I do think there are interesting tidbits in there because it's unclear whether there is even a charge yet. Apparently it's unrelated to the OFAC designation. It was pursuant to a different investigation. Um, So, you know, Tiny little nuggets of additional information, nothing really groundbreaking, but without knowing the specifics of what is alleged, it's very difficult to, I mean, it's pure conjecture what the implications are for other developers. Um, So I think until we have more clarity, I would say, depending on where you are, I, I definitely don't think any US developer has any reason to stop coding even you know mixing protocols or any protocols for that matter um because it's i think settled that writing code is first amendment protected speech and i don't think that's going to change and even if you know, law enforcement to the extent that that is even what's happening in this situation which we don't know disagrees with that you know i do think that um the law and the constitution in for us persons is is on your side so i you know i don't i do hope there's no chilling effect because i don't think at this stage there should be even if that's treasury's intent to the extent they're trying to chill the writing of certain code you know i don't it's manifestly unconstitutional thank you miller for for those in-depth responses i really appreciate that and i think it provides much needed perspective on the space and a few names have come up so far in this conversations. Most of them have been acronyms. You have FATF, you have the IMF, um, SEC, IOSCO, the EU, MICA. It's <laughs> alphabet Bank. soup. Yeah, the UN. You, any any potential one, any potential name you can think of. It's it affects crypto in some form. 
And I find often people feel overwhelmed with the number of organizations that impact crypto. If you had to educate people on one of the organizations, or if people should be cognizant of one organization and the impact that it could have on crypto and DeFi specifically, does any come? Does one come to mind? And and if so, why? Yeah, I think um, for the same reason we've been focused on elected officials, I would forget about the alphabet soup. If you're you know engaging with the government on a limited basis, I certainly think that engaging with your political representatives is the best and most impactful route. You know, talking to your congressman and your senator about why crypto and DeFi matters to you as a constituent, as a voter, is going to move the needle way more than attempting to make contact with agencies that you know probably won't respond to your email, frankly. And you know that is reflective of, I think, the way the system is supposed to work. Our elected officials are supposed to be responsive to constituents. And I think my experience in D.C. has been a vindication of that principle, especially in comparison to executive agencies. Um, so I, I think uh, you know, it's a bit of a cute answer, but I think uh, engaging with political representatives, again, at the end of the day, the big boss is the is the most useful engagement that DeFi users, developers that aren't doing this full time, but you know maybe a couple times a year can do for the space and, and for our efforts in, in DC and elsewhere. And one of the fundamental underpinnings of this conversation has been the idea of privacy and how privacy has changed over the years and how it seems to be at odds with, well, it is at odds with the surveillance state and especially after the Bank Secrecies Act and the Patriot Act, we've just seen those rights eroded relatively quickly and easily, mainly in the financial sphere because of the reduction in cash and, and checks, presumably as well, I, though I don't understand the checking system that well. Are there any specific projects from the privacy angle or otherwise in the crypto space? Maybe you don't have to name the names, but it could just be from the ideas that they're bringing forward that you are particularly excited or optimistic about for the future of crypto and and privacy generally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's less of a project and more of a technology. I am absolutely fascinated by zero knowledge proofs. I think they're like one of the coolest developments in cryptography that I've come across. And I think that not just in crypto, but across like every every part of our lives, they could have really fundamental or they provide the opportunity for really fundamental improvements with respect to personal privacy in a digital age. And so I'm really pumped on zero knowledge proofs. You know, I love the idea of of going to a bar and, you know, my ID doesn't need to show anything to the bouncer other than, yes, I am over 21. Why does it need to show my eye color, my name, my address, et cetera? It doesn't. And it's a it's a frivolous example, but to your point, our lives are all online. And given how the internet works, that means they're almost omnipotently surveilled today. And I think zero knowledge proofs are you know, again, a technology, a math of development in math and cryptography that is or has the potential to rebalance that equation because you know we're never getting rid of the digital world, so we got to fix it. And I think zero knowledge proofs are going to do that. 
not only in crypto, but I think across every digital medium in a way that I think is going to be important and I hope to see borne out. I agree. I think zero knowledge proofs are fascinating. And there's a podcast that touches directly on zero knowledge proofs. I, I can't recall the name. I don't know if you've if you've listened to it, but I'll link it in the show notes if if anyone is interested. Um, I believe it's zero knowledge podcast or something, but I will link that in the show notes because it is a fascinating area. And even recently for, for my experience of applying to rent an apartment in Toronto, it's unbelievable how much information you need to give landlords and first the real estate agent, all this personal information about your loans and, and how much money you have and how much you make, etc., should not need to be divulged. It should be green light. Okay, they're clear to rent. Red light. No, we've got issues with the application. And of course, there will be a big push to build out software in that space and government likely will need to check the back end depending on what the software is doing um, which which could be interesting maybe not have a back end insight into the system but just make sure the code does what it's supposed to do mm-hmm. um, but of course with anything there will be smart people working on hacking it and and taking advantage of opportunities there so I think that's a, a great answer Miller and last question for you I just love to touch on the idea of habits or did you want to add anything to zero knowledge proof yeah I was just I gonna go? add you know I think you know the what you just described there is why I think for people in divine crypto and people who care about privacy, the tornado sanction is so viscerally concerning because it's not about tornado cash. It's about how much we value privacy in our lives and as a society and is reflective of that broader debate that is really just getting started and I think is going to be one of the defining political issues of our life. Uh, of our lifetimes. So I think that's, you know, why Tornado Cash is such a big deal and why I think it's important to make the case here and now and hereafter every time these issues are implicated. I agree. And and thank you for adding that. Uh, The last question just relates to habits and advice. And I think there are times in, in my life I know where I've developed a new habit and it's changed me for the better and it's enabled even just doing this podcast you could say really is a habit with publishing weekly for the past it's been over a year now are there any habits that you've brought into your life that have helped you cultivate a successful career i mean the defi education fund brought you on as the first member so you're obviously doing something right and you've been it's been a success ever since or there's some things that you try to bring in to your maybe daily or monthly routines um, yeah, I mean, I think I've had the, uh, the um, benefit of working on something that is what I'm most personally excited about. And, you know, it happens to be my career. And I appreciate that that is a lame answer, because it's not a habit. But you know, it's, it's just an incredible opportunity to live and breathe DeFi in my personal life and you know my intellectual life, so to speak, and then also having it be my professional life. It, it's such a blessing, and I think is just makes it you know a joy to wake up every day because I'm working on something that I otherwise would be working on after hours if I was in some other job. So I think you know my best piece of advice when ship feels feels weird to be giving anyone advice is I think it's especially I think about kids like coming out of college who feel pretty intense pressure to go into defined career paths 
I think it's important to think about what you care about. And once you identify that and start working on it, I think the rest of the rest kind of figures itself out because you're never going to uh, underperform when you're working on something that you care about personally outside of a professional context. Um, so that's my, I, I think, like best piece of advice broadly. I think specifically one thing I've been trying to do recently is turn off the internet for a couple of days a month or a quarter, which is an absolutely terrifying thing to do. But is it, you know, I think like, especially in crypto, it's very easy to go on quote unquote vacation and mm-hmm. you have your phone in your pocket, you're on Twitter, you're getting texts, you know, you're on signal. And if you have an internet connection, there's just no way that you're getting out of the bubble, so to speak. Um, so that's one thing I've started to try and do like over a long weekend, literally turn off the internet and go full analog for three days, uh, you know, once a quarter. And I do think it's, it's been an, a, a nice addition to my routine because crypto is intense, you know, <laughs> crypto is intense. And especially when it's you know, something you care about personally, everything is infused with emotions and stakes that you feel both professionally and personally. And I think it's important to unplug from that at least for a few days a year, like, like a little detox from something that I'm otherwise addicted to. Absolutely. It's so important to go touch grass every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, like it's when the internet isn't available, it's like you can like really let go and be like, I literally can't check my email. Uh, You don't have to fight it. You know, I saw a great thing on Twitter the other day. It was a guy with VR glasses on, but the, the screen had been removed. And so he was talking about how this this new VR is incredible and he's looking around at his hands and touching things. And it just, it really shows the difference that we have where how much we appreciate technology, whereas we live in this amazing space and sometimes that's lost on us. I know, people talk about the metaverse and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm like fully living in the metaverse. Already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no way this this isn't some sort of technological simulation. Something, yeah, yeah. Something's happening here. So no, I think I think that's great, Miller. And even just to build off your point quickly on, on following your passion and doing things that don't feel like work is building publicly and, and taking chances where you don't just read about an industry, you share what you're learning, you talk to people about it, you take risks in publishing things that maybe, you know, you don't feel like you're an expert on and it might be a little uncomfortable at first. But if there is an area, a niche, no matter how small it is, there's so much room to, to build in today's age. So I think for anyone listening, that Miller's advice is, is pertinent there. So yeah, and I think that. that's especially true in crypto. You know, it's such an intimidating technology and space. And I think it's important for people just getting in to remember everyone was in that position probably within a few years. And my experience was, and I, uh, I think it, it still is the case is that people, you know, crypto DeFi broadly are more than willing to lend a helping hand to people who are just coming around to it and trying to get up to speed because everybody was there again. The, the the longest someone's been in crypto is 13 years, which in the right. grand scheme of things is a very short time period. So, I I you know I, one of the things I love about the community is is having to welcome uh, folks into the spaces and explain the concepts and what it's all about in I think a patient and open minded way, and that is definitely something that I love about it and hope people take advantage of.
It's true. It's true. Join the revolution. Miller, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Really enjoyed this conversation. I think people will learn a lot about the DeFi Education Fund and the great work you are doing. For people who are interested, want to learn more, want to perhaps donate or, or be involved, what would you recommend they do? Subscribe to our Substack. Well, first go to our Twitter, which is at fund underscore DeFi. That is, you know, everything goes on Twitter. We're in crypto. And our Substack is in our bio, which is a little bit more in depth updates weekly um but yeah just for the casual observer follow us on twitter at fund underscore defi perfect and we'll link that in the show notes we'll also link miller's handle as well thank you so much for joining me today man really enjoyed this conversation jacob thank you this was awesome